I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. What is data science? What is the difference between data science and machine learning? In this episode, Grace Huang, data science manager at Pinterest, answers these questions. We talked about complex data sets and building a recommendation system at Pinterest. Grace explained the core algorithms used in a recommendation system and the role of embeddings on this. To learn more about the topics of the show, sign up for the monthly newsletter by going to thewomenintechshow.com. Thank you for listening. Grace Huang, Data Science Manager at Pinterest, is joining us today. Grace, welcome to the Women in Tech Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We are seeing a lot of important advancements in data science, machine learning. What are the differences between all these areas? That's a really great question. So I think that there are a lot of sort of uh, confusions around whether or not data science is machine learning. Can you equate the two? In my view, data science is a general field where you use different types of tools to help you make better decision. And machine learning is one of those tools. So to me, data science is a little bit more broad. Sometimes you use machine learning to help you either derive insights of a piece of data you have or predict an end result. Um, but sometimes you can answer the same question using um, really simple analysis that may or may not require uh, heavy lifting tools like machine learning. And how do these two relate with artificial intelligence as a whole? Right. Artificial intelligence to me is an application that often involves machine learning, but again, doesn't have to, but toward a very specific goal. So, uh, for example, artificial intelligence has been applied for, um, obviously, in the old days, robotics is a very um, obvious field, but as well, you know, for, for example, self-driving cars. So there are a lot of applications that um, require machine learning, but at the same time, the end goal is to be able to create um, machines that are capable of making certain decisions and uh, to a certain extent learnings on its own. And so to me, it has a more specific goal uh, compared to data science, for example. And again, machine learning to me is a tool toward that goal. And the reason I asked this was because the first time I started hearing this data science word was at work a few years ago at Microsoft, there was this push, but it was about rich visualizations and getting insights from the data. And then recently other people are like, no, it's also machine learning. So there's all this confusion. Right. And, you know, data science is a very new term, but what I always like to remind people is really as old as, you know, the existence of uh, some sort of computation tools, right? So um, even though it's a term that is only coined, I would say within the last 10 years, there are some more traditional fields that have been applying data science. So for example, some, you know, statistics, you know, branch of um, certain fields have been using what we think is data science for a long time. The fields of, for example, operational research, industrial engineering, a lot of them have been applying similar practices. Obviously, in the field of science, in the field of a lot of computational sciences, they've been using very similar tools, perhaps with different jargons. 
but the underlying idea is very similar. Yes. Another example I think of is linear regression, which is sort of chapter one of machine learning. Exactly. I think of it, well, I was doing this in high school, given some points, find the line that best fits those points. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I think it's a lot of rebranding going on. But That's right. I think the theoretical part of it is very old. The actual computation piece, I think, often doesn't actually materialize until we have the computation power to do it. So, for example, the availability of GPU actually enables deep learning, for example, right? But the theory actually has been around for much longer than that. So sort of like the full power was not really realized until the hardware actually catches up. What about the roles within a company? I have seen some titled data scientists, others machine learning engineer. What is the difference between machine learning engineer and data scientist? Yeah, that's a great question as well. In general, at larger companies, there is a specialization between folks who actually implement the machine learning models and often do research as well uh, around those models versus people that are more focused on the major decisions around those models. And so the former, I think, are often called machine learning engineers and the latter are often called data scientists. Um, to give you probably a, a more concrete example, um, you may have a machine learning engineer whose goal is to implement a model to predict engagement, right? So you want to be able to predict how often a user to your site is going to engage with a particular piece of content. Um, so they might make a decision around what model to use. They might survey the literature, survey the libraries available, and decide that maybe they're going to use a particular neural network model to make that prediction. They may write the code to actually implement it. They may write the code to uh, implement the pipelines that creates the data set that will be used for training, for testing, and obviously for actual serving during production time. And they might implement the experimentation um, that one will often run to understand the impact of the experiment and the model. But a data scientist would be involved in the process of, for example, understanding whether or not a new model is going to effectively change the outcome of the product. So does it really matter that you increase one or 2% of accuracy, maybe that's not a very large opportunity size if you already have a very high accuracy. A data scientist might be involved in um, helping the team to figure out what loss function to employ, right? So a machine learning system is only as good as the goal or the loss function that you give it. So sometimes you need to make some trade-off between different types of actions that you consider important but are not equally important. Mm -hmm. And so this is where uh, you need to do some research and look at empirical data and apply some product intuition as well to figure out what's the right way to penalize mistakes that are made in predicting different types of actions. And so this often will require a piece of research that probably will come from the data science team. Once you start running the experiment, that's also when you start want to dive into to the impact of the actual experiment. So when you run an experiment, that's often called the online piece of result. And before you run an experiment, you will often do some offline evaluation, meaning that you would look at your test set, try to figure out what your accuracy, your precision recall, F1 score, and so on are. But online results don't always match to your offline results. 
So um, this is where you really need to start understanding what are some nuances during the data or nuances in the product that might explain the difference and how should you reason about the difference. This is especially important for, uh, you know, sort of like some models nowadays are very black boxy, right? So yes. deep learning, for example, it's very difficult to extract human interpretable uh, understanding of what a model is doing. So you can't, you know, in the case of like linear regression, you can go back and look at the weights and, you know, kind of think about whether or not it makes sense that this particular feature has this very high and positive weight and another feature has like a negative weight. But in the case of deep learning, you don't really have that sort of tools available to reason about what's going on or the tools you have is very limited, doesn't really capture the full picture. So that's where it becomes pretty important to start diving into the results of the experiment. And that's where you sort of like have to apply creativity. You have to apply kind of very uh, stringent and statistically rigorous um, methods to understand, well, how is this impacting different types of users? Maybe it differentially benefit users who come back more versus users who don't show up as much. How does it impact different demographics? And what is the downstream and long-term consequence of rolling out this model? And this black box thing that you mentioned, I think, is part of the reason why we don't see deep learning being adopted in certain areas of the finance world. For example, we could have a deep learning system that can determine, hey, you're not qualified to get this loan. But then the person might ask, well, why not? And the answer would be, because the system said so, basically. That's exactly right. Right. So deep learning is a very powerful prediction tool. It is uh, terrible at telling you why. So a lot of times you uh, do some sort of modeling not to predict the outcome necessarily, but to help you understand why decision might be made one way or the other. And that's exactly where deep learning uh, comes short. I saw that you did a PhD in computational biology, and you got to work on computational genomics for some time. And that's right. Yeah, in this area, you mentioned that the data is very different because it's high dimensional mm -hmm. with not a lot of data points. What does this mean? Yeah, so uh, in the field of genomics, you often are looking at measurements that come from, um, for example, uh, the genome sequencing machine, right? So, you know, this sort of like modern advancements allow you to measure a lot of different things at the same time. But what you don't have is you often do not have a lot of samples. And the reason I say that is um, these measurements come from living organisms. So they might come from different animal models like mouse, different types of you know, macaques, monkeys, and so on. In my case, I was studying human samples that were coming from, for example, uh, biopsies that were taken from patients you know, after consent. And so these samples are very hard to come by. They are rare, and they're small in their quantity. Um, so if you think about it from a machine learning training set perspective, what you end up having is you end up having a data set that has a lot of features. Each one, for example, might be measurements from the gene expression of this particular um, sample that you're looking at or some methylation status from the sample you're looking at. And that might be you know, in the range of tens of thousands easily. 
but you may only have something like a hundred samples or you know a few hundred a thousand samples and most sometimes um, so that actually may, if you think about it from me you know, like just use like linear regression as an example and you sort of like think about your like basic math what it is is it's a very underdetermined system right so you have a lot of features but you don't have nearly as many uh, training examples so it makes for a particularly challenging problem and this is in contrast to for example in um, the world of uh, web click stream if you have a company that's really reach a certain scale uh, let's say you have millions of users or you know tens of millions hundreds of millions of users that are coming in um, the problem is almost the opposite, right? So uh, you have a lot of samples, you have a range of millions at least of samples, but your features are not as, uh, you may still have hundreds, thousands and so on of features, but you have a lot less features than the samples available. And so in this case, it's a very nice problem to have, except that it becomes a pretty um, computational intensive problem. So even just counting actually becomes pretty difficult. And when you're dealing with that high dimensional data with not a lot of data points, what sort of conclusions have people been able to make with this limited amount of data? Yeah. So because of that challenge, I think that what a lot of people try to do is they try to reduce the dimension. Okay. And so, um, you know, it's sort of like one area of research often is how do you do feature selection, right? Like there, there are different ways of doing feature selection and, the goal is to be able to narrow down that space so that you're really focused on the most important features where the you know, number of dimensions is at least you know, within some order of magnitude of the training samples you have. Similarly, you can you know, look at a lot of dimensional reduction techniques where you are doing some sort of linear transform to find a lower dimensional space that still represent, hopefully, you know, the same amount of complexity in that larger space. And so that's also another area of very active research where people may do, you know, a simple case might be principal component analysis, it might be other types of matrix factorization where you're trying to reduce your feature space into a much smaller dimension. And then that then forms a starting point for a lot of downstream analysis that you can do. And in contrast to this, you're currently working at Pinterest and in the, an interview that you did with the O'Reilly Data podcast, which I highly recommend, it's mentioned that Pinterest is a giant, complicated corpus. What makes a corpus complicated? That's a great question. So uh, maybe just to take a second and sort of like expand that message a little bit more. Pinterest is a system where users bring their data and, and their content into a system. So we do not actively go out and uh, procure um, content from the world, right? Like every single pin is created by a person who finds that pin interesting and appealing, and they bring it into Pinterest and uh, save it into their collection on Pinterest. And so we have a lot of these, and they're complex in several ways. So first of all, they're complex in the sense that they span a very large uh, range of categories and topics and human interests, right? Like pretty much anything you can possibly imagine is up there. It's also a combination of text and images. So there are a lot of understanding that needs to be done around what the text is saying, what the image is saying. Are they high quality? 
and do they even match each other? On top of that, it often link out to the original website. Uh, so there's a lot of attributes about the website that we want to be able to understand. So these sort of like forms like a very complex web of features that we can extract from these content that people bring. Another aspect of the complexity is when and how people bring them in. So um, these content might be brought in over the course of you know, many years since the beginning of Pinterest with different intentions, and they are distributed by our system based on sort of like different heuristics. So sometimes we distribute it because you're following someone. Sometimes we distribute it because uh, you have engaged with content that's similar to this piece of content before, and we think that it will be relevant to you. And so these are like different complex distribution uh, mechanisms make for a really interesting ecosystem. Uh, and what that means is our corpus is not a snapshot or it's not a static corpus. It's um, depending on how much people engage with them, we actually bring that information back and curate the corpus differently. A very concrete example is it may be the case that today we think that kittens and dogs are uh, highly related based on our understanding of the corpus. Perhaps we start showing someone who likes dogs cats, uh, and it turned out that you know people are very polarizing. It turned out that maybe they're kind of mutually exclusive in terms of people who want to see puppies versus kittens. And so then this information then comes back and feed into our system and actually help us understand that, well, even though, you know, in our understanding, they are both animals, perhaps to a user, they're very different things. And we need to correct our understanding of it. And a complicated corpus like this also includes rich metadata that's associated with it. What is an example of a metadata in a corpus? That's right. So examples might be sort of like static information, like which URL is this affiliated with, which link domains is affiliated with, what's the image on it, and what are the features on the image, right? So the simplest examples of features might be, you know, the RBG values, the colors, uh, it might be, you know, whether or not there's text present. But you can also have more complex features. In our case, for example, we have... Um, object detections for images, so we have some understanding of what we think is on the image. Similarly, on the text front, we also have some post-processing to help us understand what are the major bag of words or annotations that's associated with this pin. And so together, we, we have this understanding of what the text is about, what the image is about. And like I mentioned, there's also the uh, evolving information that is not static, which is information that the users give us about, for example, how interested they are in a particular domain, or on average, how high quality they think this piece of uh, information is, mm -hmm. how likely are they to engage with it. So there's also this other aspect of derived or inferred signals that we can understand from the content. Or the number of likes or pins is another one. Exactly. Recently, I was looking at Facebook and sometimes they do this ads where it will be a little hero controller or a mini slideshow. Right. For example, for products, I don't know if you've seen it, like you would see some shoes and you keep clicking the right arrow and you see new models. Right. And I opened the developer tools in the browser 
And I was surprised that I went through all the little slides. I think it was five of them. Oh. And even as I went back at them, there are new requests. So I guess they're measuring how many times did you look at the slide number three? What shoe model was that? Or how much time did you spend looking at that slide? Right. <laughs> so I just thought it was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is sort of like the fascinating thing with clickstream data. There's really a lot of data you could collect about you know user behavior and unfortunately you have to pick and choose <laughs> it's almost too granular and i think in, in the field of data science for example that actually makes it really important that you're focused on the specific question you're trying to answer at any given time because if you sort of like go out and start doing uh exploratory analysis out of curiosity you will never end <laughs> there's just so much to learn Yes. And this one was surprising for me because what I would have expected was I would have just tracked, hey, did they see all the slides, but not like how many times did they see each one. So that's why I liked it. Right. And part of systems that are online, like Netflix or Amazon or even Pinterest, is to have a recommendation system. I interact with those a lot. And actually one coworker was mentioning that he bought what Amazon suggested for his kid as a birthday gift. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so it works. <laughs> it works. And what I want to ask you is, what sort of bias do you think can be present in recommendation systems? That's a really good question. I think bias is something that we should be wary of in any given machine learning system. It is especially important in recommendation system. So if we think about sort of like how recommendation system works, there are kind of a few, you know, like major approaches. Of course, there's variants of them and, you know, different amounts of certification, but like one simple variant is other people who like this also like this, right? So the idea is very simple. Um, you can look at what everyone likes, keep track of every single item that they like, and then uh, let's say I'm interested in uh, toothbrush, toothpaste, and uh, hand soap, and you're interested in toothpaste and hand soap, perhaps you would be interested in toothbrush as well, right? So it's very intuitive, very simple. So it works really great because you're actually using the actual data you're collecting from users. The downside of that is because you're using data that you're collecting from users, you only have information about what people have done in the past that you, you have a window into. So for example, if you introduce a new product, um, say basketball, and no one has ever interacted with basketball before, not because they don't like it or they're not interested in, but just because it wasn't something that was available for them to interact with on your website, then you have no data about mm -hmm. it. So then that makes for an interesting problem where if you don't take care of it, basketball probably will never show up as a recommendation, right? Yes. And so that's sort of like a very uh, simple uh, bias that you might have in the system where you have to be thoughtful about making sure that for, you know, this is often called a co-star problem, but for, you know, for any items that you do not have historical data for, you have a way or a heuristic to um, take care of of this lack of understanding. And there are many ways to do it. You might, for example, deliberately try to show it to some people to collect data. You might try to give it some baseline popularity so that it has at least some chance of showing up. And then that baseline probability might then get 
modified. And so this is often sort of like what people um, were putting like the Bayesian framework where you have some prior belief of how well it's going to do and you can modify that belief later on. And so, so that, that's one type of bias. There's also other types of bias where perhaps your user base currently doesn't reflect the user base that you're trying to target in the future, right? So this can happen where um, you're a fast-growing company, the data you collect is from uh, user behavior half a month ago, and in two months' time, you, you, know, you have gone viral, you have already you know, reached a lot more users than you did, and so all of a sudden, the model that you're training or the recommendation that you're producing is just not relevant anymore because you're expanding a lot faster than uh, you can understand. That's another type of bias that I introduced where your understanding of the world is based on historical data with existing users, but yes. it may not reflect what's actually happening right now. And similar to this, I thought of Facebook originally launched to Ivy League students, right. and right. they might obviously have had the vision that they would open you know, to other types of people, but yeah, the data that they have at the beginning is just Ivy League students, which is not really very representative exactly. of the world. And I've also come to value recommendation systems a lot recently because I've gone to the movies twice and looked up the reviews, you know, just on Google uh -huh. and it would be IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes and it would say 90%, 98. And I'm like, sure, they have <laughs> awesome reviews. And then I go and I'm like, I totally hated this movie. Right. And then I thought, well, I'm looking at a global review. I'm not looking at people with similar interests as me. So I kind of thought about it. And you mentioned trying to diversify a recommendation system to provide a broader experience choices for a user. For example, if you want to, let's say you build a system and you start like Facebook or some other company with a certain amount of groups, your friends, what are ways that you can start thinking of how you're going to factor future users from a different demographic, a different country, and things like that. Yeah, I think that if we sort of like think about it from diversifying on the content from and diversifying from the user from, I think that there are a few different strategies you can try. So on the content front, you can think about certain types of content that you either currently do not have information for or has a very low representation in, in the data that you have currently. And one thing you could try is you can deliberately rotate through the content you show to people. So instead of only exploiting what you know about them and show them what you already think that they like, you can deliberately broaden that horizon by giving them additional content that they may not have expressed interest, either positive or negative attitude toward. So um, Netflix, for example, does do this, right? They would occasionally you know, give you a recommendation of a movie that you may not necessarily interested in, but they like to collect some information. They want to know whether or not you might be interested in something in this genre. Similarly in Pinterest, you know, we want to think about sort of like how can we expand the interests and use cases you might have with our app? You know, it, perhaps that you didn't realize that in addition to searching for recipes, you could also look for um, DIY uh, woodworking ideas on Pinterest. Like it just may be that you may not have realized that that's something that's available. And so there's strategies for sort of like uh, exploring these additional content in a systematic and principled way. There's a lot of research out there 
some sort of multi-branded is something that people have tried in the past, right? Where you define some sort of reward that you're willing to give to the system, and then you systematically explore which uh, type of content that people might be interested in. And this also helps alleviate a bubble that can happen where you only get certain types of recommendations all the time, so you're not exposed to something new or very different. So the sporadic exposing a user to something that might not necessarily be recommended by the recommendation system is also a good idea too. That's right. I think that it's a good idea for the users, obviously, you know, to, to sort of like help them expand their interests. And it's also a good idea for the system. So, for example, in our case, it's a good idea for our corporate system, you know, because we then get a better understanding of, oh, like perhaps these type of users tend not to like this type of content. And so you're basically collecting additional data that you probably wouldn't have collected. On the, con- uh, on the user side, Similarly, um, you can try to make sure that you have a more balanced distribution of different types of users when you're training your model. So um, perhaps you are a company that started in the U.S., let's say 90% of the users right now is from within the U.S., and you're trying to expand internationally. Obviously, you won't have a whole lot of training data internationally, but you can potentially downsample the U.S. population upsample international population so that you build a model that is considerate of future users that you're trying to expand into. And so there are a lot of different um, sampling strategies you can play with. And I think that there's also a lot of product decisions that companies need this to help you understand which segments of the user do you value more and you mm-hmm. can then uh, structure your sampling decision based on, based on that product information. Earlier we were mentioning deep learning and the fact that it's a black box, it's been making its way to recommendation systems. But what I'm curious about is what have been the sort of classical ways of implementing a recommendation system? Like, are there any particular machine learning algorithms or mathematical concepts that have been used throughout this time before deep learning is making its way? Yeah, so sort of like one classic way of implementing recommendation is, again, like I mentioned earlier, building a graph or a matrix between users and items that you think that they might be engaging with. So the items might be movies, it might be pins on Pinterest, it might be a post, right, in the case of Facebook, for example. And so you can build this graph where every node is a user and a piece of content, and you can make an edge between a user and a content if they have expressed some sort of positive or negative opinions about that content. And this can be represented either you know, in some sort of like graph language or in just a really simple matrix form, where uh, entry on a given role and column represents the interaction between a user and the content. And so now that you have this graph or this matrix, you can sort of like apply a lot of you know, traditional uh, matrix techniques or graph techniques to help you understand what's happening. So for example, if you treat it as a graph, there are a lot of random walk algorithms that help you, say, start from a given node. So if you start from a user and then you do some random walking on the graph, you might end up somewhere else where it's a, you know, you might end up on a node that is 
within some neighborhood of the original node that you start with, but it's different. And that becomes a recommendation that you can provide to someone else. If you have a matrix representation, you can do something called matrix factorization, where you try to find a lower dimensional representation of that original matrix, which might be very large. And if you find a smaller representation, what that gives you is you have a lower dimensional representation of the entire content space. So for example, if you have a lot of different pins, you know, in the case of Pinterest, they might be represented in a smaller space where maybe every dimension is some sort of pseudo topic that you may not have a label for, but they might represent some cluster of pins that are very similar in some way, either in taste, either in topics, or in some sort of other attribute that we may not be able to describe in human language, but they often would represent these clusters or you know, sort of like things that people tend to either like or dislike in some principled and systematic way. And it's also helpful to have it as clusters because you save some space, I guess, versus having everything in a giant matrix. Exactly. And so once you have this lower dimensional representation, you can sort of now start assigning you know, your items into these lower dimensions and you have a more compact representation. And so you know, there is a lot of great qualities to it. So one, you have some way of understanding what people's preferences are. Two, at serving time, it's a lot cheaper to store um, you know, a, a smaller matrix than a giant matrix and retrieve from a giant matrix. So we've talked about a classical way of doing these recommendation systems. And as we mentioned, deep learning is making this way into this space. And I saw that you mentioned embeddings are a very important part in deep learning. Can you explain what an embedding is? Embedding is a different way of saying a concept that has been around for a long time. So an embedding is really a transformation of the data you have. So in the context of deep learning, for example, the idea is that you can have uh, these layers of neurons where every neuron is a set of operation that you apply to the data that you have. So the embedding is just a representation in that new space after you apply the transformation or the operation. And so when people talk about embeddings in the context of deep learning, often they're sort of talking about that very last layer right before you output a decision. So a deep learning algorithm can be used, for example, to predict or classify you know, whatever data that you have on hand that you're trying to make a decision for. But in addition to having that predicted decision, often that very last layer, right before you're arriving at the final answer, is helpful. And that layer is helpful, for example, in the case of uh, vision research. That very last layer often gives you some high-level idea of what are the type of features that are being output. And so folks might sometimes generate images that are coming from that very last layer. And sometimes it actually kind of makes sense. You might see that uh, certain types of foreground or background might be extracted. And that sort of like help you understand what the model is doing. Mm -hmm. In the case of other systems where you're using deep learning, mostly just to learn for example, uh, likelihood that someone is going to click on item, the embedding represents a transformation of your original data such that it's more information rich. 
So, so like going back to the matrix factorization that we talk about, in the most simple case, it might just be a transformation where you're taking a feature vector in a very high dimensional space and then representing it in a very low dimensional space. Mm-hmm. And that low dimensional representation hopefully still captures a lot of information you have in the high dimensional space, but now you have a much smaller and more compact data to work with. So sort of an embedding contains features from different data sets, kind of. Yes, it contains aggregations and transformations of features from the original data set. Okay. Before we finish, I want to talk about the process of developing models and the pipeline involved in this. For example, what is the difference between a prototype model versus the production version? That's right. Um, So there is a lot of practical considerations when you're constructing a model for uh, production use. And often these constraints sort of like narrow down the choices that you can possibly make. A simple example might be that in a prototype model, perhaps you have access to um, data for um, users that come and visit your site. And so you have information like you know, their gender, maybe the language they speak, perhaps the five topics that they said that they're interested in. But you can also derive information like, what is the likelihood that given that they've clicked on a women's fashion pin, what's the likelihood that they will click on a recipe pin? So there's sort of like this very granular information that you can derive, that you can feed into a model. In a production system, though, you're very constrained by what you have available at serving time. So, for example, in our case, uh, we generate a feed that is completely personalized to the user in real time when you come visit. And so that decision needs to be made in a split second. And so we may not have the luxury of being able to wait for the system to compute for some sort of conditional probability that given that they've done this, they might want to do that. And so that sort of like might you know, restrict the options of the features that we might have available uh, that we can feed into a model. So I think that in a production system, the availability of features often is a very important constraint, either because you may not be able to compute in real time or um, the features might take up too much space to store. And so then you have to think about, well, you know, given like this amount of storage space we have available, what are the features that we think are most crucial? And so often you're constrained in in that speed. And there's also the other aspect of um, being a prototype model, you deal with a snapshot of the data at a given time, right? And so you make some assumptions about it and then you can make uh, certain assertions about the model and the data afterwards. In a production system, your data is ever-changing. So... For example, for Facebook, the day before, after an election, you know, the, people's reactions and engagement might be drastically different. And so that's something that you have to take into consideration, right? So now you have to think about, well, how often do I have to retrain my model? Do you retrain it at some regular pace? Do you continuously retrain, which is, you know, a very interesting problem on its own. Uh, so then there's a lot of really interesting questions of like, well, how often should I be adjusting my modeling? How often should I be making sure that my training data is still distributed the same way as the previous round? 
do I want to constrain that they're the same or do I want it to let it drift but then have some sort of monitoring system mm-hmm. to be able to understand how much that has changed. And so there's a lot of considerations around how do you have adequate monitoring and alert and retraining process to move your production model along. Mm-hmm. And lastly, I think what's interesting is, you know, again, in a prototype model, you often don't worry about where your training data comes from. You often sort of assume that that's the accurate reflection of the status of the world. In a production model, the output of the model, so that's often some sort of um, prediction that you're uh, making, often would bias future training data. So what I mean by that is, for example, if we're trying to predict your engagement with a certain piece of content, we might rank the content based on that prediction. And so if you're the average user, you come into Pinterest, uh, you start scrolling from top to bottom, you might only see the 10 most relevant pieces of content that we think you might be interested in. So even though you might engage with the content differently, that very first impression is already biased by our current model. Mm-hmm. And so in the future, when we're trying to train a model again, we might then take this particular piece of data and then uh, you know, train, train future models using it. And so then it, it might already contain some amount of bias because it's affected by what we think you might be interested in at this given point of time. And so then you have to be very careful with correcting for that bias. And so again, there are ways to do it and there's like ways to try to eliminate that bias. You know, one's like the simplest case is you can every once in a while randomize the positions so that you try to take away uh, some of that bias in the system. And one important thing that you mentioned was to check what data you have access to. And one thing that I think of is maybe in your test environment, you have dummy data and then you happen to have access to the address or things like that mm-hmm. while in production because of the terms of service you don't right. so you just have to know these types of things before actually beginning to work on something even absolutely i think that you bring up a really good point which is also orthogonal to this which is like there's also a lot of constraints around what type of data you're actually allowed to use and so for example like we are under you know pretty strict terms of service and so we explicitly do not use data that we think would breach that contract with the users. Yes, correct. Last question. In organizations like Pinterest and many others, there are engineers in charge of building and maintaining the pipeline for intelligent systems. What are some of the components of this pipeline that you've interacted with as a data scientist? So often these pipelines need to have a few qualities in them and so I can maybe like go through each of the quality and, and describe what are the components involved for each of the quality, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the first is that it needs to reflect some sort of understanding of the current world. So, you know, we have a lot of users, our traffic is, you know, huge. And so we do need to downsample a lot of times to uh, make sure that, you know, it's, it's computationally feasible. And so how you sample is actually a pretty important problem. Um, So we could be involved in helping the team understand what's the best strategy for sampling. And as we mentioned earlier, sometimes that strategy might incorporate some product decision as well. 
And so there's often a component in the pipeline where you're trying to shrink your original data down to some smaller, more digestible piece. And so that's a component that is pretty important in the system. There's also another quality that's important, which is how robust your data is. And so by robust, I mean it needs to be available at all times at some regular interval. And so you need to have a really good engineering system behind the scene to make sure that uh, it has the proper monitoring, the checks, to make sure that your data is generated, it's the right size, and contains the right distribution that you think you should have. One step, I guess, that you mentioned that we could summarize is gathering the data. When you have an enormous amount of users, you know, sometimes you don't really want to be reading all this data. You just sample it. Right. Yeah, I think what I was trying to say is downsampling is important. Ensuring robustness of the data is pretty important, and that often involves some monitoring and alerts. Yeah. And lastly, understanding the divergence of the data over time or the drift of the data over time is also pretty important. Okay. So that often reflects the change of your demographics or change of your product market fit. Grace, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. 